0: I think it's Jean Chrétien who once said, you know, what do you do when you paint yourself into a corner? Will you walk over the paint?
1: the docket episode 109 I'm Michael Spratt
0: hi I'm Emily Tamman
1: hey Emily Tamman how are you
0: I'm just fine how are you Michael Spratt yeah okay yeah it's like the old same old same old at this point
1: <laughs> courts are reopening in July 6
0: yeah that's gonna introduce a whole new level of risk into our current lifestyle
1: <laughs> yeah and I have an eight day in custody trial that's apparently proceeding in July taking place uh in the courthouse
0: Well, wash your hands.
1: Yeah, I don't know quite how I feel about it. I know the Crown Attorneys Association is definitely not in favor of crowns returning to the courthouse because the risk is simply too great, they say.
0: That's right. And these are the same people who have on occasion been arguing in favor of keeping people in custody um, where their risk of contracting COVID-19 is elevated.
1: Yeah, they've been saying that that's an appropriate risk level, so...
0: Appropriate for whom? I don't really know. It's
1: been sort of frustrating, and I don't know. I, I do feel a bit strange about going back, seeing what's happening in the U.S., and seeing, you know, that this is super serious, even for young people, which mm-hmm. I am not anymore.
0: True, but I, I, my understanding is that the courts have implemented like, pretty significant physical barriers and other measures and it's not going to be as though you're going back to court in a business as usual situation where there are tons of people in the gallery waiting to be heard like I don't want to say that I have default um, confidence in the government by any means when it comes to these things in Ontario but I suspect given all of the input that's been feeding in that I think we can be hopeful that there will be measures in place and like we do have to find this balance between safety of justice system participants on the one hand and on the other hand like getting people Trials done and stuff. So,
1: um, and that's to put food on the table. That's right. You can't so make you'll money have to. You're not in court.
0: You'll have to let us know once it starts if you feel that you know the measures that are in place are in fact kind of ensuring your safety and those of you know all the other participants.
1: Yeah, it's going to be weird in Ottawa. There's four trial courts open, which probably is a little less than half of the courts that we normally have open. And I think we're still going to be dealing with some chaos and backlog because you know, all those trial courts were full, so we're running at half capacity, which means, you know, half the cases that would normally be heard won't be heard, and then we have to reschedule cases from the last four months. So um, I don't know how much this reopening, this partial reopening, is actually going to help with the backlog. And the reports that I've been hearing is that the extreme creativity and leniency that the Crown um, has was showing at the beginning of the pandemic isn't necessarily being employed anymore. Um, so I think that we're still going to be in a problem with backlogs and significant uh, overburdening of the justice system.
0: Yeah, but the, I mean, this isn't going to make it worse. I mean, it, it may not make a huge dent, but it will make a dent. And for the particular individuals involved, it it's... Um... It's a positive development, I would think.
1: Every little bit helps, so yeah. we'll see how that goes. Other than that, just same old, eh?
0: Pretty much, yeah. Working, working from home.
1: Kids are done school.
0: Kids are done school. That's a big milestone. But yeah, just kind of also tuning in to a lot of stuff that's been happening in the world, at home. Um,
2: right
1: now, we've just been listening, as we record this, to the verdict and uh, the trial of... Um, in the in the the beating of uh, Defonte Miller in Toronto, Justice Deluca is doing what the trial judge in the Vader case <laughs> did. We talked about that uh, and live streaming his decisions. So let's hope that he doesn't make any fundamental and embarrassing mistakes of law like the judge in the Vader case did.
0: So far, from what we've heard, and you know, we heard we we had to pause it to to sit down and record. So I'm really really interested. It's, it's going to take a couple of hours, but. Certainly, on the front end, uh, did a better job of outlying uh, fundamental legal principles than the trial judge in the Vader case. But also, I think there's different interests at play in terms of live streaming this decision, given that the courts aren't open. Um, and I actually thought it was quite interesting because on the live stream, there's like in tiny print underneath a reference to the Courts of Justice Act and the prohibition against recording or photographing. And the judge reminded observers of that. It was funny because when I first turned it on, I was going to take a screenshot and tweet it. And like, oh, I'm watching the verdict, but. Uh, this is really just meant to facilitate access, and he says that counsel and the media can record it for the purposes of the accuracy of their reporting and stuff afterwards. Anyway, it's interesting. It, It, you know, as someone who has been quite uncomfortable with the idea of cameras in the courtroom, this, like the delivery of a verdict, for example, where the judge is reading from something written, counsel, you know, don't have much of a role, there is something to be said for it. Like, it did feel good to be able to follow it as it happens, and not just as described by some journalists live tweeting. So,
1: Yeah, and um, Justice DeLuca is a, a top-notch judge, so it is going to be a thorough and I would wager legally correct decision. And of course, you know, just having listened to an hour of it, you can never tell which way a decision's going, which always kills me when I'm sitting there, if I'm counsel. Um, I'm like, just, you know, slip me a note, pass me something, give <laughs> me a copy of, of the decision so I can at least flip to the end and find out what it is, because... You know, you go back and forth and you can't really tell. But this is, I think, a very important decision. And, um, you know, it's a big deal that it's being live streamed to the media because I think it's uh, important for the community and uh, especially important given that one of the accused is a police officer and there's obviously racial overtones to the trial given that Defonte Miller is a young black man and um, people alleged to have have inflicted extreme injuries on him are white and one of them's police.
0: Probably more than just an overtone, but we'll see what the judge has to say.
1: I do have to say that using these new technologies in court can be a little frustrating. I just, uh, a few days ago, did a bail hearing in a first-degree murder trial that um, had some significant public interest here in Ottawa, and the call-in number, it was all done over the phone. We did three hours of submissions on the back of some very extensive written material, and the call-in number was disseminated widely in the community, so anyone could call in, and the only thing that I'll say is for the love of God, people calling in, mute your phones and don't put the court on hold because I can't stand that. Beep beep.
0: Yeah, we can hear your hold music. Beep beep. It's a little bit weird that they don't have technology that allows people to like in a in a regular court proceeding, in a regular bail hearing, members of the public can't speak.
1: No, so you can't make dinner, you can't walk your dog, and you certainly can't have a conversation to your friend in the with the, your friend in the background.
0: Yeah, why you wouldn't automatically be muted if you, like I've participated in a uh, webinar uh, this week um, in honor of my friend David Petrasic, who um, passed away recently, a giant in the international human rights community. And about 700 people, or 750 people, apparently called in. But you, you didn't, you could chat, you could ask questions by typing, but you had no option to mute or unmute your mic. You were just muted by default. And I think that would be a good practice for the courts going forward.
1: So we have um, a Very good interview with Brian Greenspan. If we may say so. That we'll get to in a moment. But before we set that up and do that, there's a few things that uh, I'd like to say. Spontaneously. This episode is brought to you by Iman Publishing's Criminal Law Series, confidently navigating criminal law cases with detailed procedural and tactical guidance from subject matter experts. Each book covers a specialized area of criminal practice written from the perspective of both Crown and Defense. The series is anchored by the expertise of General Editors Brian H. Greenspan, who you'll hear from in a short moment, and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. To learn more about the series and read a sample chapter from each footbook, visit emond.ca slash docket. And we have another special message as well. Of course, this is from good friend of the podcast, soulmate of the podcast, our number one fan. Peter Sankoff. Uh, Before we get to Peter, I just wanted to let you know that he has uh, a seminar coming up on July 30th at 11 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. You can tell he's from Calgary. That's 1 p.m. if you're in the eastern time zone or the correct time zone.
0: I believe he's in Edmonton, but carry on.
1: Oh, Calgary, (laughs) Edmonton.
0: He's in that A province.
1: Same thing, right? They share a football team or something. That seminar is entitled consent and honest mistake uh, mistaken belief in consent let's get a few things straight peter's seminars are i think an excellent way for anyone involved in the criminal justice system or for people that just want to learn more about these really complicated and important topics uh, to educate themselves especially during these Pandemic times when you sort of can't hang around the courthouse with your friends, you can't you know, ask your senior mentors, and you know, can't attend conferences in person. Having these uh, seminars online is, is, I think, a really good way to get your continuing legal, legal education in, and they're super cheap. $25 plus GST for young lawyers, one to five-year calls, and uh, $40 plus GST for more senior lawyers. I think junior or senior lawyers could definitely benefit from uh, Peter's input. Um, Certainly, the Supreme Court, courts of appeal, quote his work. And so it's, uh, I think, a, a great way for lawyers to brush up on these topics. And here's Peter to tell you a little bit more.
3: Hello, Docket listeners. My name's Professor Peter Sankoff, but you probably know me as a good friend of the podcast. Well, in addition to my visits here on the Docket, I've been busy for a while with a new project, Professor Sankoff's legal seminars. Look, if you're a criminal lawyer, you've got to do some continuing legal education. And when I looked around what was available for us, most of it seemed pretty lacking. It's expensive, and worst of all, you only get to watch it once, live and in person. I wanted to do something different. I think criminal lawyers have particular needs when it comes to continuing legal education. So my goal was to put together high-quality seminars on topical legal issues at a fair price. I think every lawyer, especially those today running on a tight budget, still needs to learn. And I want to help. All of my online Zoom seminars are directed to defense practice. I try to make them current and strategic. What do you need to know to do the best you can in court? And Best of all, it's affordable. I keep prices low, especially for new lawyers. And if you've lost your job or can't find one because of COVID, you always get in free. Now, when you attend, you don't get a recording you can watch once or for 30 days, you get it forever, and if you miss a session, you can buy the recording at a really low price. We've got five already in our video library and more on the way. I don't know about you, but paying over $100 for a one-hour CLE event doesn't really seem fair to me. Come to my seminars and learn from the experts, including me and other top-notch guests, and you'll pay a lot less. You can learn more at my website, petersankoff.com slash seminars. If you want to get in on our mailing list, email seminars at gmail.com. And next time you register for one, just mention you heard about it on the docket, and you'll get your choice of any recorded seminar in our library for free. Hope to see you online soon. All right, Em, so do you want
1: to set up what we're going to do today?
0: Yeah, so we're going to be continuing our coverage of the Meng Wanzhou extradition proceedings. And as I'm as I'm sure our listeners heard this week, a, a pretty significant development happened in that Michael Kovrig's wife has gone public um, with her plea to the government to intervene on behalf of her spouse, and a legal opinion was provided to the government by Brian Greenspan, Uh, And there was um, some media by former uh, Justice Minister Alan Rock and very close friend and relative of the podcast, Louise Arbour. We do not deny our association with Louise Arbour, who is my mother.
1: I had to write a disclaimer in my (laughs) latest Canadian lawyer piece that is coming out uh, um, next week. So it should be shortly after this episode drops. And the disclaimer that I used uh, in that piece reads as Follows Disclosure. Louise Arbor is my mother-in-law. I don't often disagree with her, but when I do, I'm never shy to, to say so. Obviously, I agree with her on this one. <laughs> That's our disclosure.
0: That's our disclosure. So, um, I guess a, a major procedural development is also that Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor have now been charged in China. So they've been in custody over 560 days and only recently were they actually charged with an offense. And... You know, what I understand has been frustrating Michael Kovrig's wife is the government's sort of repeated refrain that there's nothing that they can do at this stage while the matter is before the courts. And because they are a government that so respects the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary, the minister has to let the judicial phase run its course uh, before he becomes actively engaged in the issue. And so I think Brian Greenspan, in his opinion, and Michael Kovrig's uh, wife and others Are really pushing back against the government's claim uh, that there's nothing that can be done at this stage while the matter is before the courts. And so this really gets at these sort of two big questions. Uh, A lot of the sort of public discussion has been around should Canada, should the Minister end the extradition proceedings? And as I've just said, a big part of the Minister's response to that is I can't right now. But the question that's never really been fully explored is can the minister, is he correct when he says, and we've talked about this before, that this has sort of echoes of SNC-Lavalin, and so Brian Greenspan's opinion really gets to the core of the can the minister intervene in the extradition proceeding. And so this is something that we felt, you know, in a lot of ways I think we feel that part of the mandate of this podcast is to contribute to a more informed public debate. So, um, you know, there are a wide range of reasonable opinions as to whether these this extradition should be stopped, Uh, whether the minister should intervene. But I think it's really important for people to understand the front end of the question because in your analysis of should they, uh, the question of the, the minister's intervention being contrary to the rule of law is not, as you'll see when you hear from Brian, a proper basis upon which to say the minister shouldn't intervene. There are other reasons. There are a host of reasons why people will argue that he should or that he shouldn't. Um, But this issue of the rule of law in particular and independence of the judiciary, uh, I think, are really actually a
1: cop-out. Yeah, that's what's, I think, been the most frustrating for me. You have both the prime minister and the minister and and indeed, you know, the Department of Justice saying we can't do anything while this is before the courts and misrepresenting. And I think it will become clear that that's a, a clear faulty interpretation of the minister's powers at this stage is does a disservice not only to you know, public discourse around the justice system and how things work, but by using the justice system uh, or the fact that this is before the courts as a shield to avoid taking action, to avoid um, using the powers that he uh, has and to avoid the the question that could be uh, I think a, you know, A hot-button political question that's going to make no one happy about should the government intervene when the government is using the fact this is before the courts to say that they can't intervene to shut down that should question that really cuts off the debate before it starts and it doesn't allow us to have a debate about whether we should because we're stuck up on dealing with the government's insistence that they can't
0: and I think also by not putting squarely on the table what the multiple considerations are for the government on the question of should, it's allowing, like, to the extent that there has been a public debate, it's really narrowly focused on this question that I think is far more narrow than the question the minister is going to have to decide, which is, do we want to uh, engage in a prisoner's exchange? Or is it good foreign policy for Canada to bend to this kind of bullying? And I think it, that really misses the point. Like, I I would not want to be in the minister's shoes on this. That is a point. That is a question that the minister has to consider while weighing a whole lot of other issues. This is a quite a complex foreign policy issue that is much more than just our bilateral relationship with China. It has to do with Iran. It has to do with the U.S. Um, it has to do with, like, a, a whole number of other considerations. And I think it does a disservice to kind of frame it as either we should capitulate or we shouldn't, to China. And so I think it it would be nice if the minister would at least acknowledge that there's more that goes into the consideration. And the other thing that I would say is that this continual refrain that we respect the rule of law, we don't interfere with the independence of the judiciary, you know, China's not like us, we're a rule of law country, and China's not... China understands full well that the minister has the power to intervene at this stage. And so I actually think it's inflammatory towards China, and it's not very good diplomacy, the talking points that the minister is using at this at this particular moment in time. There are other reasons he could give for not intervening at this stage, but by constantly incorrectly framing it as a rule of law issue, I think is probably really pissing off the Chinese, and not in a way I don't think that advances Canada's interests in this dispute.
1: So let's do this. Let's uh, throw over to the interview that we did with Brian, and then we'll come back briefly and address the should question, acknowledging that we're not experts in international relations. But there are a few points that I'd like to make around the should question, because some of the discussion around that has been getting under my skin a little bit as well. So let's first put the can question to bed, and then move on to the should question.
0: Thank you very much, Brian Greenspan, for joining us today on The Docket. We're so happy to have you with us. Pleasure. I mean, as we were chatting a bit before we started recording, I think we were hoping that we could just have a conversation today to help inform some of the public debate that's been unfolding around questions of the rule of law and extradition and the roles of the Minister of Justice on the one hand, the Attorney General on the other. And so because I think if we're going to have a reasonably well-informed public debate on these issues, it's important that we at least understand the kind of, I would say, relatively uncontentious (laughs) legal elements. And then from there, we can move on to some of the other issues. So, you know, we understand that you've provided a legal opinion in relation to the, the specific question of whether the Minister of Justice has the legal authority at this stage of the proceeding to intervene to stop the extradition. Would that be a fair characterization kind of of what you were tasked with?
4: That's a fair characterization, and it's uh, it's how I attempt to, as well uh, to restrict my response. Uh, although I do deal with some of the factors that the minister might consider uh, in this phase and during the judicial phase and arriving at a, uh, a decision as to whether or not the authority to proceed should be withdrawn, uh, it was really focused on whether or not there was an opportunity at this stage to choose uh, to intervene, uh, to perhaps uh, either stop the proceedings or to consider whether the proceedings uh, should appropriately be uh, aborted at this stage. So that was the question. uh, And it was a question that pre-1999 may not have had a clear and unequivocal answer, uh, but the amendments to the Extradition Act of 1999 uh, not only created a clear answer. Uh, as you said in the preamble, uh, what I would view as being uh, quite an uncontroversial answer. Uh, all you need to do is read section 23.3 of the Extradition Act. And uh, I, it really matters not whether you take a liberal interpretation of the statute, textual interpretation of the statute. All you have to do is read the words. Uh, and the words seem uh, totally unequivocal. The words are that the minister may at any time withdraw the authority to proceed, and if the minister does so, the court shall discharge the person and set aside any order made respecting their judicial interim release or detention. So that it seems unequivocal, and if you then, I'm sorry to go on with this answer, but if you then go to the uh, discussions that took place before the Standing Committee on Justice and Legal Affairs uh, in 1999, uh, prior to the passage of the New Extradition Act, It seems clear that this was a very intentional inclusion, a very clear attempt to provide that safety valve uh, at this stage of the proceeding um, and before the minister had to then take on second phase of the ministerial role in extradition and apply the considerations that are specified in the legislation uh, as to uh, the exercise uh, of executive authority to, to surrender.
0: So I wonder if it might not be helpful to maybe just provide a, a brief overview of you know, the nuts and bolts of an extradition. So you, you referred to a couple of things there. You referred to an authority to proceed. You referred to a ministerial role. But if we just took a step back, in broad terms, in a kind of um, more run-of-the-mill extradition, uh, maybe you could just help our listeners to understand just some of the, the mechanics of um, an extradition in accordance with the law.
4: Generally speaking, every extradition between the countries with whom Canada has a treaty. The process begins uh, by there's a a charge in the uh, requesting state, the United States in this case. Uh, That charge would be communicated from the Justice Department in the United States to the State Department in the United States. They would then, by diplomatic message, communicate with foreign affairs in Canada. They would then contact Justice Canada and within Justice Canada, the Minister of Justice, and within that department, there is a group called the International Assistance Group, uh, who, generally speaking, focus on uh, extradition, international commitments, mutual legal assistance requests, uh, all of the international type of, of commitments that we have under the umbrella of international company. Uh And at that point, uh, if it satisfied the basic requirements, and all it needs to do is satisfy the basic requirements. There would be a provisional warrant of arrest issued to arrest the person who's found in the requested country, namely here in Canada. And there would be from, usually it's been delegated, to ministerial power, but the minister usually has a member of the International Assistance Group initially sign off on what's called an authority to proceed. So first of all, there's the provisional warrant of arrest. Mrs. Meng, in this case, is arrested pursuant to that provisional warrant of arrest. You really can't take issue with that. There isn't really an opportunity to review uh, the merits uh, or demerits of of exercising that almost right that uh, you have pursuant to the treaty to require the arrest to be made. That's then done. The authority to proceed uh, then is what takes the matter from the request uh, into a Canadian courtroom. And what happens there, and this is very clearly view, spelled out in the Expedition Act, the Minister of Justice issues the authority to proceed in that capacity. Once the authority to proceed is issued, it then goes to the Attorney General of Canada who act for the requesting state. And so the person or persons that appear in the Superior Court of Justice in British Columbia in this case That person is a representative of the Attorney General of Canada, acting in the capacity as agent for the United States of America. All along, though, up to that point, it's the Minister of Justice who's exercising the ministerial duties and the ministerial authority under the extradition. Matter then, in the normal course, if there's no interventions, if there's no uh, issue with respect to the legitimacy or whether there are balancing interests with with respect to the Authority to proceed. The matter then goes before uh, a Superior Court judge in the province. Uh, again, now the attorney the Attorney General's uh, representatives have the carriage of the matter for the United States. The next step is what's called the statement of the case. Statement of the case is the information provided by the requesting state. Uh, and that is now no longer in affidavit form, it's in statement form. And the, Requesting state says, Here is the evidence that's available, and we certify that that evidence will be available in order to prosecute this person in our country once we receive that person pursuant to our treaty arrangements. And that's the statement. And there's here, there was an initial statement of the case, there's then a supplementary statement of the case to back up some of the perceived weaknesses that were. sort of seen almost immediately, uh, and there was a request for further information. That's then backed up by, could be backed up by, a further supplementary statement of the case in terms of the information which provided to the Superior Court judge. Superior Court judge, absent any contentious issues, which is not the case here because there are a whole host of contentious issues. Um, We've already passed one of them, and that was dual double criminality. Uh, as, a, as a preliminary issue, there are further issues with respect to potential abuses in terms of the time of arrest or other issues that are scheduled to be heard. But ultimately, in the judicial phase of the proceeding, the uh, justice has to determine on a very low standard, some evidence upon which a reasonable jury, properly instructed, could convict. Very low standard. In 46 years of The practice of criminal law, I can probably count on one hand the number of times uh, that couldn't be satisfied at a preliminary hearing in cases in which I've been involved. So it's a very, very low threshold. That then, after that decision is made, what normally happens, pending the minister's review of the case, what normally happens is the person who is ordered extradited appeals the decision to the justice committing for extradition to the Court of Appeal of the province. Normally, in the normal course, that appeal is held in abeyance until the minister fulfills the second portion of extradition, and that is whether or not there will be a surrender. Because that's a ministerial decision, both under the Act and traditionally uh, in extradition matters. uh, In virtually every country after the judicial finding, it then goes to State Department or Foreign Affairs or, or Justice Minister or whatever the jurisdiction has chosen to be involved in the executive decision making. That decision is made in accordance with legislated criteria. So you go to the, the Act, and these are the features that the uh, minister must consider uh, before uh, ordering a surrender, uh, whether it's a matter of a... whether there's a political nature to the crime and whether the crime is for political purposes. Uh, if the um, person extradited can be subject to the death penalty under uh, in that jurisdiction in the request of state, then the minister is required to seek assurances that the death penalty will not be imposed. So there are various set criteria. The submissions made to the minister, and they can be humanitarian submissions, they can be other submissions, are made. Uh, there can be uh, some uh, issues with respect to the propriety uh, of what might take place in foreign jurisdiction. All of those issues are brought to the attention of the Minister by counsel on behalf of the person whose extradition sought. Those considerations are in writing. There's no oral hearing, there's no, uh, there's no presentation to the Minister at that stage. There is, is a written Uh, submission made, to which the Department of Justice through the International Assistance Group, acting on behalf of the United States of America in this case, would make a written response. And so the minister then has the two sides that are geared to the conditions with respect to the decision to be made.
0: So are you saying at this stage that the Minister of Justice has to consider submissions from the subject of the extradition request on the one hand and then the attorney general i.e him or herself yes (laughs) okay
4: acting in (laughs) totally capacities right because it's it's not like a criminal prosecution where the lines could theoretically or at least some people believe that the lines are occasionally blurred there's a bright line here the bright line as to what each uh, what the Minister of Justice, in the dual capacity of Minister of Justice and Attorney General for Canada, does because it's specified in the Act.
0: And that would be true, to, true too, I guess, of the that initial issuance of the authority to proceed. That is effectively the Minister authorizing the Attorney General to participate in the proceedings on behalf of the requesting state.
4: That's right. So here, what's really clear about the way in which the Act is set up is the Minister of Justice is acting in Canada's interests. The Attorney General is the lawyer on behalf of the requesting state.
0: You just blew my mind, Brian Greenspan.
4: <laughs> Those are really two very, very functionally different roles. Uh, so the Minister of Justice, uh, the again, to some extent, limited by what the Extradition Act says are the conditions or standards that have to be uh, addressed uh, pursuant to that second phase. So in the second phase, uh, the minister comes to a decision. Let's assume for a moment that the minister orders surrender. That is then subject to judicial review. And that's why the appeal has been held up, because traditionally in most jurisdictions, the appeal to the Court of Appeal of the province and the judicial review of the minister's decision to Uh, surrender are heard contemporaneously by the Court of Appeal and that then is joined together as one hearing but with two aspects to it the the appellate review of a judicial decision and the judicial review of a ministerial (laughs) so and and very often by the way very often the arguments uh, are different uh, and quite frankly very often uh, the decision of one aspect of it is not is not nearly uh, as persuasive as the other. Uh, so and sometimes they get joined together uh, because the argument's been repeated in both form. But very very often it can be different. So at that stage and then you have the appeal to the court of appeal. Uh, and if uh, that appeal is dismissed, uh, you then have leave application to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, if granted, full appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. If not. Uh, the person is then surrendered to the requesting state. So going back to where we then were, the issue here was uh, if we have, and ostensibly if we have two distinct stages of an extradition, the judicial stage or phase and the ministerial phase, what's been said by the minister in this case and by the government in this case, is we have to await stage two. That's where we come into it. And pre 1999, there was probably a good uh, argument to be made that that was the case because there was no express provision for intervention prior to stage two. But since 1999, and at the direct request of the government, the government of the day, and at the time, uh, Anne McClellan was the Minister of Justice, uh, and she went on, as you're quite aware, to write a report recently in terms of the to uh, the two roles of one person in this system and recommended the continuation of one person acting in the dual capacity. So she was the Minister of Justice at the time uh, in 1999. And what was ordered, what was recommended by the government and accepted by parliament was you would have section 23 uh, of the Extradition Act provide an early evaluation by the government of whether or not they wanted to continue to proceed. So that rather than going through this very lengthy process uh, where there are appeals uh, and judicial reviews and time uh, spent sometimes in custody and very often times uh, the so-called, I hate the word, but the so-called fugitive. Uh, they always in international relations, You know, if you're arrested, uh, all of a sudden you've become a fugitive. And you happened to be in Canada when you were arrested uh, with a request from a, a requesting state. You, you may have been a fugitive from that country. You may have escaped uh, custody. You may have done things that were contrary to your bail provisions and, and left the country uh, without uh, having jurisdiction. But very often, and most often, the person arrested on an expedition warrant may not even know of the existence of a charge. So they're hardly a fugitive. They're just found uh, where they happen to be, and they're then uh, taken into custody, and, and Canada very, very frequently released from custody. Most of them, I can even tell you, of the, I don't know how many extraditions I've done, but certainly uh, 30, 40, 50 over the course of the last uh, 46 years, I'd say in virtually all the cases I've acted on, the person has been out of custody, and that ranges from homicides, uh, to uh, frogs, uh, to you know, the whole uh, uh, the whole gamut of charges that can be laid. Remember, my first major expedition was in, uh, the arrest was in nineteen eighty two uh, of Catherine Evelyn Smith, uh, who was you may recall, or you you won't recall, but you may have heard <laughs> of it. Uh, was a Canadian woman charged in the murder of John Belushi uh, in California, uh, and Kathy Smith was. One of the first major expedition cases I did, uh, lasted for several years. But all, very often these cases last three, four years, five years on occasion. Uh, but two, three is very frequently uh, the time frame, uh, even in the case of not, uh, two, not, not the complexity that this case presents here. So you're likely to see a three or four year time lag from the time of arrest until the conclusion. So, what Section 23, Sub 3 did was it afforded the government the opportunity to take a sober second look at it, uh, have a safety valve if they decided that it wasn't uh, uh, in Canada's best interest or for whatever reason. Because what's interesting about 23.3 is unlike the second phase of expedition, it's ministerial, where you have to give reasons, you have to justify what you're doing, and it's subject to judicial review. 23.3 has no criteria, it has no standard upon which you exercise the discretion. It seems to be freely a government decision to do as they see fit at that stage of the expedition proceedings. Don't have to give reasons, just have to walk in court and say, we withdraw the authority to proceed. Now, politically, that's unlikely to be uh, the way it would happen, uh, because politically, in most cases, you'd have to at least satisfy Transparency rule in terms of of the justice system, and say why you're doing it. Uh, But why you're doing it can simply be Canada's best interest. Having reviewed the the case, we've determined that it's not one in which we wish to participate. And I think that's what your um, your
5: opinion does a very good job of distinguishing between the issue of can. The Minister of Justice act versus should the Minister of Justice act. As we've seen here, a lot can change between the initial arrest and the court process. I mean, in the intervening time, just in this case alone, there's been the detention of two Canadians. There's been information from President Trump about the political nature, perhaps, of this arrest. And there's been some more certainty with respect to um, the sanctions in Iran and Canadian, uh, the Canadian position on those sanctions, and and how you know this might fly in the face of our stated foreign policy. So things can change, but ultimately, to those individuals who are saying, you know, this is a case where we can't tell judges what to do, and it would undermine the rule of law. It sounds like the legislation explicitly. Gives the government that power, and the rule of law informs what a minister should be doing because he's not telling the judge what to do or or um, telling an independent court what to do, but he's exercising the authority that is granted
4: to him by statute. Right. Happy that you finished off with that because I, I agree with you completely. It's not interference with the court process. That's the misconception here. Uh, it's it's the exercise of the ministerial. Discretion first to authorize the proceeding, so the authorization to proceed is what brings the judicial process into play. All it is, and it's not playing with that process. What it is is a reconsideration of whether or not that authority to proceed should issue or continue to issue. So that's where the ministerial power exists, and that's the control. It has nothing to do with the. Decision making of the judge. If you leave the authority to proceed with the judge, then the judge continues to make those decisions that are part of stage one of the proceeding. But before uh, you have, uh, and and I don't like the analogy here between extradition and criminal proceedings. But a judge in court in a criminal case you only proceed if there's an indictment before the judge. All and, and it still remains pretty well pretty clear that with with very few exceptions, mainly abuse of process exceptions, with very few exceptions, the prosecutor can withdraw the indictment. Then the judge has no piece of paper to operate under, to exercise their discretion, to continue with the proceeding. So that in the same way, what authorizes the judge here to proceed is the authority to proceed. And it's clearly and unequivocally in my view Uh, within the power of the attorney, uh, the power of the Minister of Justice here to, uh, to choose whether or not that authority to proceed will continue.
0: And it seems like some people are maybe misconstruing the nature of the judicial phase as well, because in a criminal proceeding, the judge's determination is determinative, subject to appeals. Whereas in the context of extradition, I think it would be more accurate to characterize the judge as having to rule on certain minimum thresholds without which the extradition can't proceed, but in light of which it's not necessary for the extradition to proceed in the sense that if you're found guilty, if that's not overturned, you're guilty. (laughs) If you're committed by the judge in the sense that the judge in an extradition hearing concludes that there is that very, very low sufficient evidence standard that essentially it would not be contrary to the law to extradite this person. That doesn't mean that the law requires that person to be extradited. And I think that's what people are really not getting here. So yes, and another example of that would be the judge had to rule on the issue of double criminality here. And we did a podcast about that and explained the judges, the significance of that decision. But in effect, without double criminality, you can't extradite. But just because double criminality has been established doesn't mean you must extradite. And so I was listening to some of the journalists' questions this week in response to your opinion and some of the other representations that have been made in public and and was really getting hung up on this question of, but the judge found there was double criminality. So how can you make to the Iran sanctions, for example, um, as a reason not to extradite? And I think that's, again, the judge is deciding about double criminality the minister, though, has to has to look at some of those issues in the context of Canada's strategic interests and, and foreign policy. And so, just because the judge is saying that that was not a barrier to extradition, doesn't mean the minister can't consider that same issue in determining whether to surrender the fugitive. Is, That's is that absolutely
4: correct. correct. Exactly. As a matter of fact, you probably expressed it more clearly than I would have. Sure. So, <laughs> so, I guess this conversation is at an end. No, I uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> think you
4: well, it was nice But, with but, you, sir. but, but uh, no, that, that, that's precisely the point. And it's not, again, for instance, let me say this the, the threshold for committal, as I said, is a very low threshold. That doesn't detract from the minister in this exercise of discretion uh, and the balancing that the minister might consider in terms of. Proceeding with an authority to proceed at this point. The idea that, well, I don't have to consider whether or not there's sufficient evidence to commit. Let's make the assumption that there's sufficient evidence to commit. And even if there is sufficient evidence to commit, along with the considerations of, we didn't have sanctions with Iran, uh, we have other political interests, we have two people incarcerated in China. And now, I'll get to the point. Although there'll be a committal for trial, it's not a great case. The evidence isn't very persuasive. At the end of the day, uh, under Canadian law, very possibly could be an acquittal uh, because the evidence is not compelling. So that is a consideration that can be made in the overall balancing that has nothing to do with interference with the judicial decision-making function. It has something to do with all of the considerations and all the facts that would come to bear in the determination of whether the minister should intervene. So it's a should intervene issue in terms of what factors they might consider. And that's certainly open to debate on both sides of the issue. That's one that, you know, to the extent that I entered into that in the opinion, It was only to point out, here are some of the factors that might go into a consideration of intervention at this stage.
0: Right. And I think we would agree that there are all kinds of debates that could take place, and most of those will happen behind closed doors for obvious reasons, um, as to whether this extradition should proceed. But one thing that I think we would now agree is not an obstacle to the extradition not proceeding is the question of the rule of law. In other words, the minister shouldn't say, well, I can't intervene because the rule of law, it would be a violation of the rule of law. That is just so incorrect. And that's what's been really, I think, frustrating me when I've been watching the debate unfold because I want to hear people's reasons why they, don't, why they think the extradition should proceed or why they don't think we should capitulate to China. But the rule of law is not a valid reason in the context of that discussion.
4: So it's a reasonable argument to suggest that by failing to address section 23.3, to ignore the rule of law, uh, because by failing to at least address the issues that uh, have arisen in relation to whether or not the authority to proceed uh, should continue, you and to suggest that, that there is no power to intervene at this stage, is really to ignore the section, to read down the section uh, as if it didn't exist, because it either is there or isn't there. And as long as it's there, they i sure there are a lot of parliamentarians who might consider amending the Extradition Act and removing the power of the 23.3. But it's there. Uh, It's not as if we can ignore it. It's there, uh, and it's there to be considered. And uh, if a determination is made by the government of the day uh, that they don't want to withdraw the um, authority to proceed uh, prior to the judicial phase, then it'll go on in the ministerial phase. I think that that's what has made me
5: the most frustrated. When you listen to the Department of Justice saying that, you know, the minister personally doesn't make these decisions until the court process is over, or the prime minister saying that, you know, in Canada, we don't interfere with an independent judiciary, or even when David Lametti himself, I think on his um, entrance interview, when he was first uh, first appointed to cabinet, he said that as a matter of political decision-making, um, the government isn't going to look at anything until it runs through the courts. And it's sort of that misinformation that I I suspect the government is using. Because, uh, I mean, Lametti is a lawyer. He's a law professor. Um, he can read the section, uh, not to take away from your expert legal opinion, Brian, but he can read the section as well as, <laughs> as anyone else can. I agree. I agree. It seems pretty plain to me. So, I mean, I suspect that This these sorts of lines are probably being used as a bit of a shield to to explain inaction because any action would be politically damaging one way or the other. This is a decision that's not gonna that's not gonna make anyone completely happy. But using sort of a a misrepresentation or inaccuracies about the justice system, I think, does great harm to the justice system.
4: And 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 again, it certainly concur completely, and you concur with with what I've said here. So we're all on the same page in terms of what the uh, how the act reads uh, and uh, there should be a healthy public debate and in, in a debate within the government uh, as to whether they ought to intervene and if not, to state the reasons publicly one way or the other, to favor one view or the other. And that's certainly uh, where the power of the government exists. One thing I would say, and this should, I think it's important to distinguish uh, the Extradition Act for normal criminal proceedings. Uh, because I can't think of another act that defines the respective roles of the Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada more precisely and more clearly than the Extradition Act. The rules sometimes, the problem, indeed, the issue that and McClellan uh, dealt with in her report uh, following SNC level was this. Problem with where the line exists, what the rules might be, uh, and because in criminal matters the role is not clearly defined on occasion, uh, and the role um, in terms of when the Minister of Justice is acting in the ministerial role and when the Minister, when the Attorney General of Canada is uh, acting in the prosecutorial role, uh, how those two live together uh, without interference one with the other uh, here. Uh, There isn't a question of interference, there's a question of responsibility. And the responsibilities of each of those roles are very clearly expressed. Uh, And when when the act says Minister of Justice, that's what they mean. And when the act says Attorney General Candidate, that's what the act specifies.
0: And yet when we're having these discussions, I think especially more casually, it's so easy to conflate, even just with language, (laughs) like to inadvertently refer to the Minister as the Attorney General. I saw today in CBC uh, in relation to this issue, a former Supreme Court judge quoted as saying, I I would hope before the attorney general intervenes, he would have reasons that convince Canadians he should. So he means the minister in that case. Then it says, the attorney general has to be very cautious in overruling a trial judge who has conducted a full hearing. (laughs) And I think we would agree that's not an accurate characterization of what would be happening in this case. The Attorney General's role is, as you've described it, the minister has a different role, but it is completely inaccurate in any way to describe a ministerial intervention at this point as an overruling of the judge, because the minister is considering completely different issues, even though they may overlap than the judges. So, but I mean, I think that does show that even though it is relatively clear when you read the act, it is very, the kind of superficial parallels to a criminal prosecution, (laughs) I think make it really easy to fall into these kind of mistaken either uses of language or just fundamental misunderstandings of the process. So certainly I hope in part what we've accomplished in our conversation today is just giving our listeners the tools to not only to inform their own views, but also to kind of push back against some of these really politicized mischaracterizations, I think, because I, I mean, I agree with Mike that I think, you know, David Lametti can read the act as well as any of us. And for me, this has, parallels to when um, politicians will also you know, leave issues to the court to decide and then claim judicial uh, judicial activism, for example, because they just don't want to take responsibility for decisions and for limits imposed by the charter or by statute or whatever it is. So it's, it's understandable, but we're at least trying to do our part in getting people to kind of understand the mechanics and then they can run with it from here. So thank you so much for giving us your time and for um, this opinion that you've written is is now in the public domain, so we'll be um, posting it as well to the website alongside
4: this podcast. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, and uh, it's been a pleasure.
1: Welcome back to the podcast. After that um, great interview with um, not only one of the uh, integral people involved with Iman Law Series, uh, Criminal Law Series books, but also um, the lawyer who didn't offer me an articling job.
0: (laughs) You're never going to let that go.
1: Krongold stealing my job. (laughs) But before we move on to talk more about the should question, let's do something I like to call the uh, mid-roll, maybe the end of podcast (laughs) ad read. This episode is sponsored by Iman Publishing's award-winning criminal law series. And do you know a book I think might be appropriate to talk about? Just pulling one out randomly. Just Which a one? random, random book. Prosecuting and Defending Extradition Cases, a Practitioner's Handbook. Now, this book is, um, was published in April of 2017. So that's long before we entered into these tricky areas of double criminality and, you know, the minister's hands being tied. But it is also um, long after 1999, when the Extradition Act was amended to give the minister the powers that he perhaps doesn't know that he has.
0: Yes, so to that extent, it is uh, likely very much up to date and perhaps would be a useful reference for the minister himself.
1: Or perhaps the... Other former Supreme Court judge who will go unnamed, who is doing some media rounds and mixed up the minister and the attorney general and also seemed to be repeating some of the incorrect statements that the government was putting out. So this book could benefit both prosecution, defense, and perhaps the minister and (laughs) former influential public figures themselves. Agreed. For our listeners, EMOND is offering 10% off titles in the series. Just visit emond.ca slash docket and enter code DOCKET10 at checkout. So, do you want to hear my hot take on should? I do. It's a balance, right? And I think the balance tips to we should. That the minister should call this to a halt. Very briefly, I'll give you my reasons why I think that the balance tips in that way, recognizing that reasonable people can disagree on this and that there is a balance. And I think really importantly, the point that I think you made to me last night when we weren't recording, but just chatting about these things as we do in our free time, that if you look at any one of the factors and you concentrate only on that factor, then the question, the answer to the question seems clear and obvious. If you just look that the two Michaels are in custody and they'll likely die if we don't do this, um, it seems obvious that the minister should. If you only look at the speculative possibility that doing this could embolden other countries and endanger the lives of millions of Canadian citizens through similar actions by rogue states or hostage takers, it seems obvious that the government shouldn't. And so just if you focus on one factor, um, I think it does a disservice to the should argument. But briefly, the Michaels, I think, likely will die if they're not released soon, um, if, this is, if this continues. And I think that's what has spurred that and perhaps being ignored by the government has spurred these advocates um, from trying to educate the government and, and making their case. Beyond the Michaels, though, This is a tricky area of politics and policy. And number one, I think we need to recognize that there is obviously US political interests at play here. Donald Trump has repeatedly said that Meng can be used as a bargaining chip in trade negotiations. There's rumors that when um, John Bolton's book is released that there will be passages in that talking about negotiations with Meng um, by the US and China and that's sort of like the US taking a hostage to engage in negotiations and it seems that it is not beneficial for Canada to be used as a pawn in sort of those corporate and trade negotiations on top of that there's the fact that these charges arise from unilateral sanctions imposed sort of in defiance of the pre-existing uh, sanctions against iran or the pre-existing nuclear deal that iran and and the global community the us had um that canada didn't agree with so the the very facts underlining these charges are against canadian foreign policy and that's a big deal as well of course when you look at the other side people might say you can't capitulate to to bullies and china's bullying us But we have to also look south at the border and see if we're letting the U.S. drive our foreign policy and if we're capitulating to another bully there. And you might say that, you know, we shouldn't negotiate with hostage takers. That endangers Canada, that endangers Canadian citizens, and this will happen again. That has been Trudeau's stated policy for a while. That policy obviously didn't stop this incident. So I think it's speculative. I think there is evidence that just if you take a hard line, it will... Prevent these hostage takings, and of course we do know that Canada and other countries engage in negotiations with hostage takers all the time. Perhaps less ham-fistedly and ineffectively that uh, has been done on this occasion because of you know what the what this government has done. But this is something that historically has happened, and it I think does a disservice to the actual people who are at risk here, and I think it misrepresents how precedent setting it could be to engage in that same sort of uh, engagement in, in this case.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's fair to characterize this as being analogous to a situation where you have a country with a political interest in having the Canadian government do a certain thing, so they take two of our nationals and say, you know, if you do that thing that we want, we'll give you back your nationals. Like, there's so much more to this particular context and you know i think anybody which is most people at least on social media who presents this as an obvious choice and there are people on both sides like there's people that say it's obvious because there's two lives at risk that the government should intervene there are people who say it's obvious because we don't negotiate with terrorists or you know hostage takers that we shouldn't do this and i think anyone who's casting this as an easy decision is as you've said focusing too much on one factor and not properly recognizing that the minister has a number of competing interests to to weigh and that even if you were to take the michaels out of the equation completely there would be a compelling or foreign interest basis upon which the government might decide not to have this extradition proceed so that, you know, even this, this is not purely a tit for tat hostage negotiation. (laughs) This is um, a case where there actually would have been a defensible case for the minister to make early on in these proceedings, like right after Meng was arrested, even before, you know, any of these other factors came into play to say, you know what, it is not in Canada's strategic interests to proceed with this extradition. And that would be a legal position to take, that would be a lawful position for the minister to take. I think the real problem is that because they didn't act sooner, and I suspect a big part of the reason that they didn't want to was because the NAFTA negotiations were ongoing. So at that time, the most compelling argument not to intervene was our relationship with the United States. Now, the, the more central issue seems to be our relationship with China and what intervention would mean. But I think they've really painted themselves into a corner because I think a lot of the considerations that we would say, you know, might militate in favor of intervening. Number one, their repeated refrains about judicial independence and, you know, all of those issues make it very difficult for them to now totally backtrack on that and intervene, having said multiple times how improper it would be. So in a lot of ways, they painted themselves into a corner. I think it's Jean Chrétien who once said, you know, what do you do when you paint yourself into a corner? Well, you walk over the paint. You know, you suck it up. You made a mistake. But in a case like this, there are a lot of implications to sucking up that mistake and changing course now, um, which complicate the weighing of the multiple, you know, different interests that are at stake here. So. In a lot of ways i think this comes down to a case where there probably is nothing that they can do at this point or at least nothing that they'll be willing to do they're not going to be willing to pay the political price not only domestically but also in terms of um, international relations but i do think they need to be held accountable for the fact that they really screwed this up like royally And whether it's because of the NAFTA negotiations, whether it's because they were advised that they really thought the judge would find that there was no double criminality, and so that would just end the proceeding without them having to make a decision. But the reality at this point is that to allow the judicial phase to fully run its course, as Brian Greenspan explained, could take multiple years. And there's a very high likelihood that the two Michaels will no longer be alive at that point. And so the government really has to consider if that is one of the factors that they're willing to weigh they need to give it a little bit of extra precedence given the timing issue. So, I mean, I'm just really frustrated by the, the thinness of kind of the justifications that people are putting forward for their very strong held views on either side. I don't think it's an easy decision. I'm not sure what decision I would make in the minister's shoes, but I also think it's interesting because one thing we haven't referred to is also this letter that was sent to the prime minister by 17... 17- former diplomats including 19 19, including foreign ministers both liberal and conservative including ambassadors to the united nations and to the united states including a former deputy secretary secretary general of the united nations all of whom are arguing that in their consideration of all of these different factors and in their weighing their view is that it actually weighs in favor of intervening to end the extradition so like these are people with significant experience in international relations and diplomacy and so I think a lot in the public and even in the media are being pretty quick to dismiss their views these are people who understand the extent of the different factors that the government has to weigh here and they still they're not just saying yeah on balance we should do a tit-for-tat prisoner exchange. Like, no, they these are people that un- are, have a sophisticated understanding of foreign policy, much more so than most of us, including me and including you. <laughs> so, um, and I'm not saying that that means that they're right. But I do think it's interesting how dismissive people are willing to be of that view. And basically what they're saying is, well, then Canadians abroad will be... Like, they get that. They get that that's one of the things that the government has to consider. And despite that, it's still their view. And so...
1: And that's speculative, that that other Canadians could be put at risk. That's I mean, it's speculative. speculative,
0: but it's. I mean, it, really? It's...
1: I mean, but we've engaged in 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 negotiations of this type where there has been sort of either economic or physical hostage taking. And does it happen every day? No. Is this a very unique case? Yes. So it is speculative. We don't know that that will be an outcome. But what we do know is that there are two Canadians now who are in custody.
0: That's true. I mean, I think I agree that that is being given probably a little too much weight in terms of, you know, the frequency with which that happens. But it does happen. And it's not speculative in the sense that it's pulled out of thin air. I mean, this is a well understood potential downside of paying a ransom, if, if that's what you want to consider this to be. So I don't think it's like you know, out of thin air that that would be something putting forward. But you're right that it's, you know, future question mark, how many people, and also the fact that there's nothing, if if this matter doesn't get resolved, there's nothing stopping China from grabbing more Canadians, not just in the future, but in the context of this particular dispute. And so, you know, but, I, but at the same time, I just think we have to be very careful to always keep really focused on the fact that this is a highly, highly unusual circumstance. It's very unlikely that we're going to find ourselves in this situation again so it's very difficult to analogize to past situations where we've paid ransoms because I think those are also very different situations but it's also very hard to say well the minister doesn't typically intervene at this stage so the minister shouldn't hear because this is a very unusual case as well so to kind of b- become very obsessed and preoccupied with precedent or the lack like the precedent that could be set or the lack of precedent for this kind of intervention I think is really misguided because this is such an unusually complicated extradition case that, you know, just invokes so many different interests and issues.
1: And I mean, I hope that the government is in good faith balancing all these interests. I mean, if the government, we've heard Donald Trump say that this is basically a hostage taking on his part because it's a bargaining chip. And if the government is not just being used by Trump administration to get to that goal, but is being complicit in that, like knows that that's what he's doing, then I think that that could change the flavor as well. So apart from the balancing that we're doing in the should, I think when you look at the political side, there may be more information that the government knows that they're looking at sort of optics and political calculus domestically based on information that they may or may not have from the United States. And, you know, maybe we'll find out more when Bolton has his book come out or after there's more reporting. But I think that that's something to keep an eye on as well. But I think you're right. I think that the government perhaps in their, their any decision that they make is going to anger some people. It's either going to anger China, it's either going to anger the US. It's going to displease those who, who you know, want some negotiations. Um, it's going to displease those who would take a strident stance that we should never negotiate, and that has put them in a hard spot. And I think it's only made it worse that they've put on these false handcuffs and invoked interference with the judiciary and the rule of law when really not doing anything and misrepresenting the law is contrary in this case to the rule of law. They might be snake bitten by SNC, but. That of course is a very different circumstance, and if that's the case, they really haven't learned anything from the SNC scandal.
0: Yeah, I do want to give a particular shout out, and I'm sorry for just continually having referred to her until now as Michael Kovarik's wife, but um, Vina Najibula, like she is. If you haven't had a chance to see her interviewed on this, I really encourage people to go and check out her interviews on the National and on Power and Politics. She's incredibly well spoken. She has an incredibly good handle on the decision that the government has to make here. And she's very fair about it, too. Like, she, she says exactly what you just said. There is no solution here that is perfect. There is no solution here that everyone is going to accept domestically or internationally. And there is a price to pay. So who, you know, the, as she framed it last night on The National, right now, the way that things are going, it's the two Michaels that are going to pay that price. If that's the decision that the government makes is in our best national interest, then they should at least say that that's the call that they're making. Um, but I would really encourage, because she, she's, you know, she she's doesn't super have, well-spoken. She's well-spoken. She doesn't sound as desperate as I'm sure she feels. And it's it's clear that she's using a lot of restraint to be balanced in the way she's talking about the issue. And actually showing, like, a some degree of empathy towards the government in terms of the difficulty of the decision. But like the signatories to the letter, is making the case that you know, the fact that these two lives hang on the in the balance does tip the scales in favor of a ministerial intervention. And if it doesn't, she would like the minister to just say so. And so I think that's, you know, just interesting to look at. I think it's you know, I understand on a, a kind of international relations basis, the temptation for the government to have this decision made by someone other than the minister. So the double criminality decision, you know, now people are starting to say, well, we should wait till after the US election. I mean How long are we going to keep waiting? Because the reality is, it's going to be well. First of all, it's not as though the U.S. election is a foregone conclusion, and anyone who thinks it is, or or maybe it is, and it's not, it's not the direction we'd like it to be. And the
1: election's in November, but I mean, the new president, president,
0: if there is one, great as
1: Zeus that happens, isn't going to be sworn in until I think January two thousand and twenty-one.
0: That's right. So I mean, it's it's not as though there's a milestone upcoming that is like quite certain. Even the double criminality issue, although I do on some level understand why they wanted to wait for that because it, it really could have shut it down. But, you know, the next phase is going to be considering whether there was an abusive process in the arrest. That's something that risks making the government look very bad and actually really embarrassing the government.
1: And um, self-serving if they shut things down now exactly. on the eve of uh, of a hearing that's going to investigate what they knew, what they did and why they did it.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, all of this is to say that I think probably the right thing to have done would have been for the minister to have intervened a long time ago all of that weighing and balancing is different now than it was then and just by virtue of their repeated talking points and just the change in circumstance so what might have seen like a an overwhelming case several months ago now because of their own miscalculations i would say it is a much more difficult thing and not only for partisan political reasons but also for you know international relations reasons and others so you know i I think it's it's just like a really unfortunate situation and listening to the description of the conditions that these men have been held in and and how hopeless they must be feeling it is really devastating and i'm sure as their family members it must be very devastating every time you hear a pundit or a politician kind of off the cuff to say the two michaels oh and then there's the two michaels i mean these are two real people who are in absolutely devastating circumstances. And we, we do need to remember that when we're weighing this, that th- that factor in particular is a very real, very human factor.
1: I can't shake the feeling that if there weren't Canadians detained in China, if we were just talking about devastating, severe, complete economic retaliation by China, and there has been some of that with increased tariffs and things like that but imagine even worse tariffs um, disrupting the supply chain uh, into Canada things like that I can't shake the feeling that if it weren't lives but it was other economic interests we were talking about the decision that the government made and the position that the government is taking might be very different I can't shake the feeling that if this was about just more money and corporate interests and not about two people that Miss Meng may very well have been released
0: Well, it's, you know, the unfortunate reality is with the increasing space that China is taking up as a emerging superpower, uh, we'll probably get an answer to that question at some point in the future, because, um, you know, that is not a speculative hypothetical. There will be some context at some point in the future where we have a disagreement and a government, whether it's this one or a a future government will likely find themselves having to make a decision in, in that same context. But at the same time, whether a piece of that context is another jurisdiction seeking an extradition of a Chinese national. I mean, it really is, um, you know, the stuff out of, like, fiction almost, so. Um, But anyway, you know, just, I don't want to be seen as being in the camp of people who thinks this is an easy or obvious decision, and anyone who doesn't agree with me is stupid, which is how a lot of people seem to be framing, you know, the two sides of this this issue, and I think that's really unfortunate.
1: Yeah, I think it's complicated. There's no easy answer. I think there's good arguments on, on both sides, and right now, not knowing anything, I might tip one way, but, you know reasonable people I think can definitely disagree on this right. question
0: please please in particular the Minister of Justice but also commentators like please stop framing this as a rule of law issue because it really isn't and so you know point to other reasons why we shouldn't do this if that's your view but really to, to suggest otherwise is is disingenuous and either you're just eating up government talking points, which are incorrect, or you're being as disingenuous as the government is on that point. And I think that also you know, really undermines the quality of the public debate that's, that's taking place or that should take place.
1: One very last thing before we go, very briefly. You might be listening to this and say, wait a second. I remember the docket episode, and I remember the stuff that uh, Michael Spratt wrote about how su- former Supreme Court judges should not get involved with you know, offering the government opinions and, and providing public commentary on things. Remember when I, when I wrote that, we talked about that? I
0: do.
1: Uh, that was in the context of SNC, of course. And then that same person, this hypothetically unreasonable person, might say, and wait a second, former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbor weighed in on this. She's been on the uh, talking and doing interviews on this. She um, authored a memo with Alan Rock that was sent to the government on this. Um, Aren't you being a little hypocritical to give her a pass? Um, And I think that people would be right to uh, to maybe raise that question. Uh, It's something that I've thought about when I look at this case. It's very different, I think, from what we saw and what attracted some criticism in um, the SNC case or even in the opinions sought by former judges by the Harper government and the judicial appointment of uh, Marc Nadon to the Supreme Court. Those cases were the governments wielding Supreme Court justices or former Supreme Court justices as swords, seeking opinions to back up government policy and being or displaying... uh, a lack of sort of transparency or an opaqueness about what was discussed, why they got the opinion, how they got the opinion, and how they were going to use the opinion. Uh, I think this case is very different, um, as um, uh, Louise has acknowledged. She has a close connection to this case. Um, one of the Michaels, I forget which Michael one, Kovrig. Michael Kovrig, was uh, with the International Crisis Group. That uh, Louise was the CEO, present, president, CEO. Leader of, um, so she has a an interest here that she's disclosed. But this is also advice to the government who is getting legal things wrong and is not listening. Yeah. Uh, 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 unsolicited advice, uh, unsought-out advice, and that's very different, I think, than the government going out and getting an opinion that they agree, that they want, that agrees with them from a former judge to use to bolster their position.
0: Well, and I would also say that, you know, while there's no question that her status as a former Supreme Court judge does put some heft behind, you know, her, her opinion... She ain't um, just a judge. No, I think a lot of the experience that she brings to bear on this issue is totally separate from her role as a former Supreme Court judge. It's someone who has probably a better understanding of foreign policy by virtue of having been the head of the international crisis group, by having had a, a lot of experience within the UN system, including as the High Commissioner for Human Rights. That is That has nothing to do with the experience that a Supreme Court judge has. And so I think in this context, she does have bona fides to weigh on in on an issue, an issue of international relations and... and On the extradition question as well, in part also by virtue of her role, you know, on the global compact for migration and these kinds of issues. So I I do think it's it's distinguishable. You know, I understand where the criticism is coming from, but I find that it's a little bit superficial in this particular case. But also, obviously, we have our own. Um, You know, we are talking about a relative of the podcast
1: after all. It's true. And I mean, no one can be chippier than me. But I think when you see, like you were saying, people that take strident views saying that this is an easy call and people, you know, publicly saying things like this former judge needs to just shut up and stay in her lane. I think that says more about those people in this case and their sort of lack of understanding of the nuance and digging their heels in on an issue without sort of thinking about things. But I wanted to acknowledge that um, because I think it would be um, reasonable for someone to listen to a past episode and listen to this episode and wonder who um, had gotten to me and what had happened with respect (laughs) to the consistency of my opinion on that issue.
0: All right. Well, I think we should probably wrap this up.
1: Do you know what we didn't talk about this episode? What? That we forgot to talk about for the last three episodes.
0: Oh gosh. Some judicial appointments in Ontario that happened like two months ago. I
1: know. And we're going to forget to do it next time too but I I just very briefly want to say that um, like two months ago um, the federal government announced I think it was eight or nine uh, judicial appointments they were all female judges there were many judges um, from um, uh, diverse backgrounds including racialized uh, um, judges and I have looked because I always look to try to find faults with <laughs> who the government appoints. Uh, I can't find any faults with these individuals. This uh, is
0: probably the the single best group of appointees to be appointed all together at one point. I think they're going to make a stellar cohort. I'm sure they'll be lifelong friends.
1: Well, and then, of course, there's Rainyu Mandani, M- M- who, um, past guest of the podcast, the former um, commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, an amazing appointment. Kat Verner, who I worked with when I was articling at Hicks Block Adams. When
0: you were a baby lawyer. I know one of
1: one of the. I will say for my partner Howard Krongold's benefit, the second best appeal (laughs) lawyer in Canada. Kat is. She is amazing, compassionate, intelligent, and is going to make an excellent judge. And then, of course,
0: Narissa Samji, who's a former colleague of mine from the Public Prosecution Service of Canada, who is an excellent lawyer. Uh, I think is going to be possibly the only racialized judge in the Superior Court in Ontario, in, in Ottawa, in the Ottawa region, or?
1: It might be. in on Maybe uh, there's only a handful in Ontario, and I can say that I don't believe there's a racialized judge in the Superior Court in Ottawa, and there is one racialized judge, um, one and a half. Because Justice Fraser has moved on to be like a regional senior justice, but I think there's only one active sitting trial judge in the Ontario Court of Justice in Ottawa. So in Ottawa, one of Canada's largest cities, I'd have a complement of 40 or 50 or more judges having one racialized individual. Isn't good, and so this is a good first step, a first round of an appointments that I think really goes a long way to both gender and, and ethnic and racial diversity on our bench, which is important.
0: That's right. So
1: and m- most credit importantly, right, credits do. Most importantly, they're all super qualified and super smart, and you know I can't wait to appear in front of some of these judges. Uh, the
0: only the only um, criticism I would make, or the only tinge of sadness I felt, was in no longer having these excellent lawyers at the bar doing the good work that they were doing. Because really, I mean, this is, these were some exceptional appointments. So it's really thrilling to see that. And um, congratulations, Your Honours.
1: Well deserved. (laughs) Okay, with that, I think we're officially done. Done. All right. Uh, Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening. See ya.
1: Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com or you can subscribe to The Docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tammen and you would follow me on Twitter at mspratt. Thanks for listening.
2: You can't prove it, oh, oh You got nothing legit, oh.